Chapter 8, Part 2 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Julian Jameson. Chapter 8 State of Persian and Restoration of the Monarchy. Part 2. The theology of Zoroaster was darkly comprehended by foreigners, and even by the far greater number of his disciples. But the most careless observers were struck with the philosophic simplicity of the Persian worship. That people, said Herodotus, rejects the use of temples, of altars, and of statues, and smiles at the folly of those nations who imagine that the gods are sprung from, or bear any affinity with, the human nature. The tops of the highest mountains are the places chosen for sacrifices. Hymns and prayers are the principal worship. The supreme God, who fills the wide circle of heaven, is the object to whom they are addressed. Yet, at the same time, in the true spirit of a polytheist, he accuseth them of adoring earth, water, fire, the winds, and the sun and moon. But the Persians of every age have denied the charge, and explained the equivocal conduct which might appear to give a color to it. The elements, and more particularly fire, light, and the sun, whom they called Mithra, were the objects of their religious reverence because they considered them as the purest symbols, the noblest productions, and the most powerful agents of the divine power and nature. Every mode of religion, to make a deep and lasting impression on the human mind, must exercise our obedience, by enjoining practices of devotion for which we can assign no reason, and must acquire our esteem by inculcating moral duties analogous to the dictates of our own hearts. The religion of Zoroaster was abundantly provided with the former, and possessed a sufficient portion of the latter. At the age of puberty, the faithful Persian was invested with a mysterious girdle, the badge of the divine protection, and from that moment all the actions of his life, even the most indifferent, or the most necessary, were sanctified by their peculiar prayers, ejaculations, or genuflections, the omission of which, under any circumstances, was a grievous sin, not inferior in guilt to the violation of the moral duties. The moral duties, however, of justice, mercy, liberality, etc., were in their turn required of the disciples of Zoroaster, who wished to escape the persecution of Ahriman, and to live with Ormuzd in a blissful eternity, where the degree of felicity will be exactly proportioned to the degree of virtue and piety. But there are some remarkable instances in which Zoroaster lays aside the prophet, assumes the legislator, and discovers a liberal concern for private and public happiness, seldom to be found among the groveling or visionary schemes of superstition. Fasting and celibacy, the common means of purchasing the divine favor, he condemns with abhorrence, as a criminal rejection of the best gifts of providence. The saint, in the Magian religion, is obliged to beget children, to plant useful trees, to destroy noxious animals, to convey water to the dry lands of Persia, and to work out his salvation by pursuing all the labors of agriculture. We may quote from the Zendavesta, a wise and benevolent maxim, which compensates for many an absurdity. He who sows the ground with care and diligence, 
acquires a greater stock of religious merit than he could gain by the repetition of ten thousand prayers. In the spring of every year a festival was celebrated, destined to represent the primitive equality and the present connection of mankind. The stately kings of Persia, exchanging their vain pomp for more genuine greatness, freely mingled with the humblest but most useful of their subjects. On that day the husbandmen were admitted, without distinction, to the table of the king and his satraps. The monarch accepted their petitions, inquired into their grievances, and conversed with them on the most equal terms. "'From your labours,' was he accustomed to say, and to say with truth, if not with sincerity, "'from your labours we receive our subsistence. You derive your tranquillity from our vigilance.' Since, therefore, we are mutually necessary to each other, let us live together like brothers, in concord and love. Such a festival must indeed have degenerated, in a wealthy and despotic empire, into a theatrical representation. But it was at least a comedy well worthy of a royal audience, and which might sometimes imprint a salutary lesson on the mind of a young prince. Had Zoroaster, in all his institutions, invariably supported this exalted character, his name would deserve a place with those of Numa and Confucius, and his system would be justly entitled to all the applause which it has pleased some of our divines, and even some of our philosophers, to bestow on it. But in that motley composition, dictated by reason and passion, by enthusiasm and by selfish motives, some useful and sublime truths were disgraced by a mixture of the most abject and dangerous superstition. The magi, or sacerdotal order, were extremely numerous, since, as we have already seen, fourscore thousand of them were convened in a general council. Their forces were multiplied by discipline. A regular hierarchy was diffused through all the provinces of Persia, and the Archimagus, who resided at Balk, was respected as the visible head of the church, and the lawful successor of Zoroaster. The property of the Magi was very considerable. Besides the less invidious possession of a large tract of the most fertile lands of Medea, they levied a general tax on the fortunes and the industry of the Persians. "'Though your good works,' says the interested prophet, "'exceed in number the leaves of the trees, the drops of rain, the stars in the heaven,' or the sands on the seashore. They will all be unprofitable to you unless they are accepted by the destor, or priest. To obtain the acceptation of this guide to salvation, you must faithfully pay him tithes of all you possess, of your goods, of your lands, and of your money. If the destor be satisfied, your soul will escape hell tortures. You will secure praise in this world and happiness in the next. For the destors are the teachers of religion. They know all things, and they deliver all men. These convenient maxims of reverence and implicit were doubtless imprinted with care on the tender minds of youth, since the Magi were the masters of education in Persia, and to their hands the children even of the royal family were entrusted. The Persian priests, who were of a speculative genius, preserved and investigated the secrets of Oriental philosophy, and acquired, either by superior knowledge or superior art, the reputation of being 
well versed in some occult sciences, which have derived their appellation from the Magi. Those of more active dispositions mixed with the world in courts and cities, and it is observed that the administration of Artaxerxes was in a great measure directed by the councils of the sacerdotal order, whose dignity, either from policy or devotion, that prince restored to its ancient splendor. The first council of the Magi was agreeable to the unsociable genius of their faith, to the practice of ancient kings, and even to the example of their legislator, who had a victim to a religious war, excited by his own intolerant zeal. By an edict of Artaxerxes, the exercise of every worship, except that of Zoroaster, was severely prohibited. The temples of the Parthians, and the statues of their deified monarchs, were thrown down with ignominy. The sword of Aristotle, such was the name given by the Orientals, to the polytheism and philosophy of the Greeks, was easily broken. The flames of persecution soon reached the more stubborn Jews and Christians nor did they spare the heretics of their own nation and religion. The majesty of Ormuzd, who was jealous of a rival, was seconded by the despotism of Artaxerxes, who could not suffer a rebel, and the schismatics within his vast empire were soon reduced to the inconsiderable number of eighty thousand. This spirit of persecution reflects dishonor on the religion of Zoroaster, but as it was not productive of any civil commotion, it served to strengthen the new monarchy, by uniting all the various inhabitants of Persia in the bands of religious zeal. Artaxerxes, by his valor and conduct, had wrested the scepter of the east from the ancient royal family of Parthia. There still remained the more difficult task of establishing, throughout the vast extent of Persia, a uniform and vigorous administration. The weak indulgence of the Arsacides had resigned to their sons and brothers the principal provinces, and the greatest offices of the kingdom in the nature of hereditary possessions. The Vitax, or eighteen most powerful satraps, were permitted to assume the regal title, and the vain pride of the monarch was delighted with a nominal dominion over so many vassal kings. Even tribes of barbarians in their mountains, and the Greek cities of Upper Asia within their walls, scarcely acknowledged or seldom obeyed any superior and the Parthian Empire exhibited, under other names, a lively image of the feudal system which has since prevailed in Europe. But the active victor, at the head of a numerous and disciplined army, visited in person every province of Persia. The defeat of the boldest rebels, and the reduction of the strongest fortifications, diffused the terror of his arms, and prepared the way for the peaceful reception of his authority. An obstinate resistance was fatal to the chiefs, but their followers were treated with lenity. A cheerful submission was rewarded with honors and riches, but the prudent Artaxerxes, suffering no person except himself to assume the title of king, abolished every intermediate power between the throne and the people. His kingdom, nearly equal in extent to modern Persia, was on every side bounded by the sea, or by great rivers, by the Euphrates, the Tigris, the Araxes, the Oxus, and the Indus, by the Caspian Sea and the Gulf of Persia. That country was computed to contain, in the last century, five hundred and fifty-four cities, sixty thousand villages, and about forty millions of souls. If we compare the administration of the House of Sasan with that of the House of Sephi, the political influence of the Magian with that of the Mahometan religion, 
we shall probably infer that the kingdom of Artaxerxes contained at least as great a number of cities, villages, and inhabitants. But it must likewise be confessed that in every age the want of harbors on the sea-coast, and the scarcity of fresh water in the inland provinces, have been very unfavorable to the commerce and agriculture of the Persians, who, in the calculation of their numbers, seem to have indulged one of the nearest, though most common, artifices of national vanity. As soon as the ambitious mind of Artaxerxes had triumphed over the resistance of his vassals, he began to threaten the neighboring states, who, during the long slumber of his predecessors, had insulted Persia with impunity. He obtained some easy victories over the wild Scythians and the effeminate Indians, but the Romans were an enemy who, by their past injuries and present power, deserved the utmost efforts of his arms. A forty years' tranquillity, the fruit of valor and moderation, had succeeded the victories of Trajan. During the period that elapsed from the accession of Marcus to the reign of Alexander, the Roman and the Parthian empires were twice engaged in war, and although the whole strength of the Arsacides contended with a part only of the forces of Rome, the event was most commonly in favor of the latter. Macrinus, indeed, prompted by his precarious situation and pusillanimous temper, purchased a peace at the expense of near two millions of our money. But the generals of Marcus, the emperor Severus, and his son, erected many trophies in Armenia, Mesopotamia, and Assyria. Among their exploits, the imperfect relation of which would have unseasonably interrupted the more important series of domestic revolutions, we shall only mention the repeated calamities of the two great cities of Seleucia and Ctesiphon. Seleucia, on the western bank of the Tigris, about forty-five miles to the north of ancient Babylon, was the capital of the Macedonian conquests in Upper Asia. Many ages after the fall of their empire, Seleucia retained the genuine characters of a Grecian colony, arts, military virtue, and the love of freedom. The independent republic was governed by a senate of three hundred nobles. The people consisted of six hundred thousand citizens. The walls were strong, and as long as concord prevailed among the several orders of the state, they viewed with contempt the power of the Parthian. But the madness of faction was sometimes provoked to implore the dangerous aid of the common enemy, who was posted almost at the gates of the colony. The Parthian monarchs, like the Mughal sovereigns of Hindustan, delighted in the pastoral life of their Scythian ancestors, and the imperial camp was frequently pitched in the plain of Ctesiphon, on the eastern bank of the Tigris, at the distance of only three miles from Seleucia. The innumerable attendants on luxury and despotism resorted to the court, and the little village of Ctesiphon insensibly swelled into a great city. Under the reign of Marcus, the Roman generals penetrated as far as Ctesiphon and Seleucia. They were received as friends by the Greek colony. They attacked as enemies the seat of the Parthian kings. Yet both cities experienced the same treatment. The sack and conflagration of Seleucia, with the massacre of three hundred thousand of the inhabitants, tarnished the glory of the Roman triumph. Seleucia, already exhausted by the neighborhood of a too powerful rival, sunk under the fatal blow. But Ctesiphon, in about thirty-three years, had sufficiently recovered its strength to maintain an obstinate siege against the emperor Severus. The city was, however, taken by assault. The king, who defended it in person, escaped with precipitation. A hundred thousand captives, and a rich booty, rewarded the fatigues of the Roman soldiers. Notwithstanding these misfortunes, Ctesiphon succeeded to Babylon and to Seleucia, 
as one of the great capitals of the east. In summer, the monarch of Persia enjoyed at Ecbatana the cool breezes of the mountains of Medea, but the mildness of the climate engaged him to prefer Ctesiphon for his winter residence. From these successful inroads, the Romans derived no real or lasting benefit, nor did they attempt to preserve such distant conquests, separated from the provinces of the empire by a large tract of intermediate desert. The reduction of the kingdom of Osrone was an acquisition of less splendor indeed, but of a far more solid advantage. That little state occupied the northern and most fertile part of Mesopotamia, between the Euphrates and the Tigris. Edessa, its capital, was situated about twenty miles beyond the former of those rivers, and the inhabitants, since the time of Alexander, were a mixed race of Greeks, Arabs, Syrians, and Armenians. The feeble sovereigns of Osrone, placed on the dangerous verge of two contending empires, were attached from inclination to the Parthian cause, but the superior power of Rome exacted from them a reluctant homage, which is still attested by their medals. After the conclusion of the Parthian war under Marcus, it was judged prudent to secure some substantia, pledges of their doubtful fidelity. Forts were constructed in several parts of the country, and a Roman garrison was fixed in the strong town of Nisibis. During the troubles that followed the death of Commodus, the princes of Osrone attempted to shake off the yoke, but the stern policy of Severus confirmed their dependence, and the perfidy of Caracalla completed the easy conquest. Abgarus, the last king of Edessa, was sent in chains to Rome, his dominions reduced into a province, and his capital dignified with the rank of colony. And thus the Romans, about ten years before the fall of the Parthian monarchy, obtained a firm and permanent establishment beyond the Euphrates. Prudence, as well as glory, might have justified a war on the side of Artaxerxes, had his views been confined to the defense or acquisition of a useful frontier. But the ambitious Persian openly avowed a far more extensive design of conquest, and he thought himself able to support his lofty pretensions by the arms of reason as well as by those of power. Cyrus, he alleged, had first subdued, and his successors had for a long time possessed, the whole extent of Asia, as far as the Propontis and the Aegean Sea. The provinces of Caria and Ionia, under their empire, had been governed by Persian satraps, and all Egypt, to the confines of Ethiopia, had acknowledged their sovereignty. Their rights had been suspended, but not destroyed, by a long usurpation, and as soon as he received the Persian diadem, which birth and successful valor had placed upon his head, the first great duty of his station called upon him to restore the ancient limits and splendor of the monarchy. The great king, therefore, such was the haughty style of his embassies to the emperor Alexander, commanded the Romans instantly to depart from all the provinces of his ancestors, and, yielding to the Persians the empire of Asia, to content themselves with the undisturbed possession of Europe. This haughty mandate was delivered by four hundred of the tallest and most beautiful of the Persians, who, by their fine horses, splendid arms, and rich apparel, displayed the pride and greatness of their master. Such an embassy was much less an offer of negotiation than a declaration of war. Both Alexander Severus and Artaxerxes, collecting the military force of the Roman and Persian monarchies, resolved in this important contest to lead their armies in person. 
if we credit what should seem the most authentic of all records, an oration, still extant, and delivered by the emperor himself to the senate, we must allow that the victory of Alexander Severus was not inferior to any of those formerly obtained over the Persians by the son of Philip. The army of the great king consisted of one hundred and twenty thousand horse, clothed in complete armor of steel, of seven hundred elephants, with towers filled with archers on their backs, and of eighteen hundred chariots armed with scythes. This formidable host, the like of which is not to be found in Eastern history, and has scarcely been imagined in Eastern romance, was discomfited in a great battle, in which the Roman Alexander proved himself an intrepid soldier and a skilful general. The great king fled before his valor. An immense booty and the conquest of Mesopotamia were the immediate fruits of this signal victory. Such are the circumstances of this ostentatious and improbable relation, dictated, as it too plainly appears, by the vanity of the monarch, adorned by the unblushing servility of his flatterers, and received, without contradiction, by a distant and obsequious senate. Far from being inclined to believe that the arms of Alexander obtained any memorable advantage over the Persians, we are induced to suspect that all this blaze of imaginary glory was designed to conceal some real disgrace. Our suspicions are confirmed by the authority of a contemporary historian, who mentions the virtues of Alexander with respect, and his faults with candor. He describes the judicious plan which had been formed for the conduct of the war. Three Roman armies were destined to invade Persia at the same time, and by different roads. But the operations of the campaign, though wisely concerted, were not executed either with ability or success. The first of these armies, as soon as it had entered the marshy plains of Babylon, towards the artificial conflux of the Euphrates and the Tigris, was encompassed by the superior numbers and destroyed by the arrows of the enemy. The alliance of Khosros, king of Armenia, and the long tract of mountainous country in which the Persian cavalry was of little service, opened a secure entrance into the heart of Medea, to the second of the Roman armies. These brave troops laid waste the adjacent provinces, and by several successful actions against Artaxerxes gave a faint color to the emperor's vanity. But the retreat of this victorious army was imprudent, or at least unfortunate. In repassing the mountains, great numbers of soldiers perished by the badness of the roads, and the severity of the winter season. It had been resolved that whilst these two great detachments penetrated into the opposite extremes of the Persian dominions, the main body, under the command of Alexander himself, should support their attack by invading the centre of the kingdom. But the unexperienced youth, influenced by his mother's counsels, and perhaps by his own fears, deserted the bravest troops, and the fairest prospect of victory and after consuming in Mesopotamia an inactive and inglorious summer, he led back to Antioch an army diminished by sickness, and provoked by disappointment. The behavior of Artaxerxes had been different. Flying with rapidity from the hills of Medea to the marshes of the Euphrates, he had everywhere opposed the invaders in person, and in either fortune had united with the ablest conduct the most undaunted resolution but in several obstinate engagements against the veteran legions of Rome, the Persian monarch had lost the flower of his troops. Even his victories had weakened his power. The favorable opportunities of the absence of Alexander, and of the confusions that followed that emperor's death, presented themselves in vain to his ambition. 
instead of expelling the romans as he pretended from the continent of asia he found himself unable to wrest from their hands the little province of mesopotamia the reign of artaxerxes which from the last defeat of the parthians lasted only fourteen years forms a memorable era in the history of the east and even in that of rome his character seems to have been marked by those bold and commanding features that generally distinguish the princes who conquer from those who inherit an empire till the last period of the persian monarchy his code of laws was respected as the groundwork of their civil and religious policy several of his sayings are preserved one of them in particular discovers a deep insight into the constitution of government the authority of the prince said artaxerxes must be defended by a military force that force can only be maintained by taxes all taxes must at last fall upon agriculture and agriculture can never flourish except under the protection of justice and moderation artaxerxes bequeathed his new empire and his ambitious designs against the romans to sapor a son not unworthy of his great father but those designs were too extensive for the power of persia and served only to involve both nations in a long series of destructive wars and reciprocal calamities the persians long since civilized and corrupted were very far from possessing the martial independence and the intrepid hardiness both of mind and body which have rendered the northern barbarians masters of the world the science of war that constituted the more rational force of greece and rome as it now does of europe never made any considerable progress in the east those disciplined evolutions which harmonize and animate a confused multitude were unknown to the persians they were equally unskilled in the arts of constructing besieging or defending regular fortifications they trusted more to their numbers than to their courage more to their courage than to their discipline the infantry was a half-armed spiritless crowd of peasants levied in haste by the allurements of plunder and as easily dispersed by a victory as by a defeat the monarch and his nobles transported into the camp the pride and luxury of the seraglio their military operations were impeded by a useless train of women eunuchs horses and camels and in the midst of a successful campaign the persian host was often separated or destroyed by an unexpected famine but the nobles of persia in the bosom of luxury and despotism preserved a strong sense of personal gallantry and national honor from the age of seven years they were taught to speak truth to shoot with the bow and to ride and it was universally confessed that in the two last of these arts they had made a more than common proficiency the most distinguished youth were educated under the monarch's eye practised their exercises in the gate of his palace and were severely trained up to the habits of temperance and obedience in their long and laborious parties of hunting in every province the satrap maintained a like school of military virtue the persian nobles so natural is the idea of feudal tenures received from the king's bounty lands and houses on the condition of their service in war they were ready on the first summons to mount on horseback with a martial and splendid train of followers and to join the numerous bodies of guards who were carefully selected from among the most robust slaves and the bravest adventures of asia 
these armies both of light and of heavy cavalry equally formidable by the impetuosity of their charge and the rapidity of their motions threatened as an impeding cloud the eastern provinces of the declining empire of rome End of chapter 8, part 2